and welcome to Ox Tales, the podcast that serves up rich and surprising stories about food and how it makes us who we are from the world's longest running conference on food, the Oxford Food Symposium. I'm your host, Anna Sigrether, and this week on the podcast, what is a landscape? And how do different ways of seeing a landscape affect the deeply held opinions we might have about food, identity, and each other? So I have uh, a toddler, well he was a toddler back then, but Rafi, my son, I thought it's a Monday, what do we do? I wanted to go to a playgroup and I heard there was a playgroup at a local church nearby. So I, and it was a drop-in playgroup, which sounded great. We walked in, the atmosphere was quite nice. There were lots of mums. I was aware that I was the only black mum there as, as happens to me quite a lot in Bristol. Uh, or, or in this part of Bristol um, and so I you know it was really friendly everything was fine Rafi was playing with the other kids and then it was time you know so there's a certain time that people go and get tea so I was like okay I'll go and queue up with all the other mums and you know every other mum you know got they seemed to get their tea I don't think they are they necessarily asked for their tea I don't think I think it was just a case you queue up you go to the uh, kiosk and you you know you're given a cup of tea or, or a, a drink of some kind when I got there so the, this lady sort of grey hair uh, short grey curly grey hair and, and glasses um, in her 70s really seemingly nice looking lady who was friendly to the mum in front of me I, I got her to get my tea and she just put her arms down and pretended that I was not there. It was really awkward. I, I sort of stood there and then I thought, oh, hi, uh, could, I, could I have a cup of tea, please? And then she just stood there and turned her face away from me. And then I sort of stood there. I didn't say anything. And then an, uh, what her, her colleague, another woman, sort of just gave me a cup of tea, smiled at me, and then I went off. You know, I smiled back and then walked off. I didn't challenge her, I didn't say anything. Um, but it was really upsetting, you know, because then I had my cup of tea. Rafi was really happily playing there and then I just wanted it to get out of there, you know. So I took him and left and I never went back to that playgroup. So the, for the woman, I was, she, it's quite powerful. She didn't say anything, she didn't have to say anything, but it's a really powerful Thing because she made me invisible but at the same time made me really aware of my visibility as a black person so it's a really strange thing you know so you're invisible and hyper visible at the same time <laughs> so what do you do when the country you live in doesn't see you the way you see yourself when it wants to render you invisible in its very landscape, and when it won't even serve you a cup of tea. In Brexit-era Britain, Fazia Ismail finds answers and some more questions in Somali food. Okay, yeah. Uh, my name is Fazia Ismail. Um, I co-founded the Matatu Kitchen in October 2016, and that is an East African supper club in Bristol. 
Fazia, her husband, and her two sons moved from London to Bristol in 2015, a time when the anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim sentiments were beginning to bubble over nastily into the day-to-day world. anti-migrant incidents over the weekend raising red flags across the UK. Hello, good evening. There are fears of an escalation in neo-Nazi activity in this region after a 400-strong rally voted in favor of the Brexit, leaving many... Far from her comfortable London neighborhood and her work as a community educator and activist, Fazia needed something familiar. As the place became more hostile, I felt like I psychologically I was craving home comfort food as well. And my comfort food is Somali food. Fazia is Somali but grew up in London. Her mom brought her and her siblings there from Kuwait as refugees in 1985 when they were unable to return to Somalia because of the civil war that was brewing. One of the few pieces of Somaliland that her mother was adamant on sharing with her children was food. And at the time, I didn't understand why. And now as an adult and with my own children, I really understand it. Because when I would make hawash, the ubiquitous spice blend that goes into most Somali dishes, I felt at home. Like I felt this sense of home. It's a smell that I grew up with. It's a comforting smell. And that's so powerful, that food memory. So, enticed by those powerful memories of home, Fazia and her friend, Edwina Bruford, began to learn all of Fazia's mother's recipes. They started serving them in a cozy supper club out of her Bristol home. The Matatu Kitchen was born. But being a social anthropologist by training, Fazia began noticing the way people, particularly white people, were starting to talk about her food. I was really interested in this idea that when we set up the supper club initially, the way in which it was talked about was, you know, this exotic new thing. While Somali food was not a new thing to Bristol, there were Somali cafes that catered mainly to a traditional Somali clientele, for many of her white guests, this was the first time they had ever encountered it. And their sense of novelty became the story. And that didn't didn't really sit well with me as a Somali woman, because it felt... Like that was completely coming from a white perspective. You know, the, the, the storytelling was, you know, so I had to, it felt like I had to fit into a box. This space that she had created to feel more free was becoming one where, ironically, she felt constrained by the expectations of others. How was it that no matter what kind of space she tried to create, the way white people talked about it always dominated the story? And then she remembered a passage from a book she had read during her studies by the feminist geographer Gillian Rose. It inspired her to write a paper for the 2017 Oxford Symposium, where she would hash out some of these questions. And in in this book, she has this phrase, landscape is a way of seeing which we learn. And it's a phrase that really resonated with me as a black African Somali British woman, essentially, because it kind of brings about this idea that landscape isn't neutral. People bring their history to that landscape, their perspective, their knowledge, uh, their experience, what they've learned about the world. Not landscape like a Turner painting, but landscape as in, what do we as individuals notice around us? Oftentimes, it is what people don't see in a landscape that is the problem. And as a result, what they react to is only what they want to see. We all have heard the expression that history is written by the victor. 
and that can mean a lot of important stories aren't told, or only told from one side. Telling these stories through food has become Fazia's mission. I find it amazing there is such a level of ignorance about our, our history in this country. There, re- there really is a level, even in Bristol, Bristol, which is a city built on slavery, it's all the wealth that came from here. You know, it was, a, it was, a, it was hugely, hugely um, reliant on the slave trade. And yet this woman in Bristol could not, I, just, I find it shocking that she, she makes no connection between that food product or the drink product that she is refusing me. The tea she was refused, its very existence, is a direct result of England's colonial rule in India. It was brought here, it was brought to Britain through, through imperialism, you know, through colonialism. Even though that cup of tea's foreignness was equal to her own, Fazia says it has somehow become more intrinsically British than she could ever be. And she points out that many Somali families, who have been in the UK since at least the late 19th century, still face the stereotype of being recent refugees, draining the welfare system. I find it astonishing that people think, well, Somali people arrived in the 90s with the Somali Civil War, rather than in the late 1800s, you know? Thousands settled in England after serving in the British Navy as merchant sailors during the British colonial rule of Somaliland, as well as after the Second World War. Because we we were amazing navigators. You you know, we are good on the sea. So this idea that we've only recently arrived or we've only... it, It kind of angers me because it's a real erasure about how globalization works and how trading works and it's a it's a f- false narrative and and telling it through food is really interesting and the, it's it's really from a quote that I read uh, of Stuart Hall's Stuart Hall is a cultural theorist and he he worked a lot on critical race theory and Stuart Hall you can see the impulse of the british the and he says I am the sugar at the bottom of the English cup of tea. I am the sweet tooth, the sugar plantations that rotted generations of English children's teeth. There are thousands of others besides me that are, you know, the cup of tea itself. You know, and I think that's so powerful because it 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 really brings about the presence of the black body in the food objects. There's that cup of tea once again. Exposing the untold colonial histories behind beloved British foods is only one part of Fazia's mission. And the second part is a bit more complicated. What about the foods, and people, that are themselves invisible in the dominant landscape? While running the Mentatu kitchen, Fazia realized that there was a perception that African food did not exist in the UK, even though that was not her perception at all. It's one thing to get people to believe a story about something they can see. It's quite another to get people to see something they've been pretending wasn't there. Why this selective omission? Fazia says the answer is rooted in yet another glossed-over history. I mean, I'm not an expert in this field. However, I'd say from about the 17th century, there was a whole um, huge investment in academic knowledge or scientific knowledge to try and establish the differences between groups even the beginnings of anthropology, so looking at categorising humans by their differences, their physical traits, um, and, you know, trying to root in this idea that African people were inferior 
because we had different brain sizes and different skulls and you know all sorts of um, pseudoscience but which try to justify the the real oppression of African people because how can you enslave another human you know at the same time that this was going on you had you know the enlightenment era and philosophers debating issues around you know really establishing the concept of human rights and freedom and all, all those kind of things basis of our justice system so how can you have a system which is talking about these these grand ideas about human rights and then at the same time enslave humans well you have to make the african person unhuman to justify slavery and colonialism To dehumanize, you must deny the existence of something that makes humans who we are. And what is more central to humanity than cooking food? These so-called scientists made a distinction that lives on today in insidious ways. They deemed some societies advanced and others primitive. And when it came to food, only sophisticated cultures could have cuisine. What we consider cuisine is a very European idea of eating. At a restaurant or um, at a high-end establishment with different types of plates and a different kind of skill set, I guess, on the plates, and it gets it gets very refined, and um, a lot of African foods can be then easily dismissed um, because they don't necessarily fit into that. Um, they don't fit into that way of uh, cooking. Maybe this dismissal can get internalized. Fazia says and make people less inclined to open up restaurants, particularly for white audiences. But that's not the only reason people from the African diaspora tend not to open up restaurants in the same way that many other immigrant communities do. But more importantly, I think it's to do with this issue around structural racism, which means that we, I'm talking about black population in the UK, tend to be amongst the poorest people in the UK. So there's not the financial resources there to set up these food businesses. And on top of that structural poverty, many Africans living abroad feel the pressure to send money back home to family. Called remittances, these payments often drive riskier livelihood options, like opening up a restaurant, off the table. Africa takes more in from remittances than it gets in any international aid. And that I find amazing. So you look at the mainstream narrative, oh, well, they're just constantly, you know, there's this aid and there's this, you know, it's like, no, actually, we support our own communities on top of the exploitative system that's been set up. You know, colonialism still exists because the economic structures have been completely set up to benefit Western powers. They have, you know, and it's still it's it's still ongoing. I don't know how we change that, you know? All of these factors, the racist pseudoscience, the definition of cuisine, structural racism and poverty, work within the British landscape to make African foods, if not totally invisible to outsiders, then hard to see. But things might be changing. For people in diasporic communities, food has always been a way of making sense of the distance between the homeland they learn through their family stories and the everyday world they live in. Do you know you're you're aware of your links back home and then but at the same time you actually grew up 
to- like I grew up totally in the UK and then there's ideas about Somali identity and you know what it means to be a Somali woman your your identity is being pulled in different directions which is why the food actually for me was a really it was it's really calming and so there is a new generation of young black entrepreneurs often women who are starting restaurants street food stalls blogs and other food projects all around the world fazia has spoken to many of them some for her paper at the oxford symposium they all had this sense that as as part of the african diaspora that element of food it was so important for their parents and for them but it's not something we necessarily picked up on as children it's only now as adults maybe that we understand the the importance of that food connection and that connection to your historical root particularly if you particularly if you don't have a relationship with that landscape i've never lived in somaliland i've never you know i've never been there but i know the food and Fazia sees how a new player in the culinary scene is making some of this reconnection possible. The digital landscape. Well, yeah, I mean, the digital landscape. I'm, I've been really interested in this because I, I believe that um, a lot of amazing activist movements have started on the digital landscape. And also, I personally, for me as a black woman, I have found a space and a voice with other black women all trying to work out some of these issues about where we fit in and so it's nice not to feel that you're struggling alone in this um because it's really really obvious to us as black you know for me it's obvious how structural racism works and the fact that it's still an unbelievably uh, hostile world for a black body you know to exist in Social media and other platforms are allowing for important political conversations to rise to the surface during times of intense division and racism. It's all it's all those kinds of issues that I think it's quite interesting that the digital space gives a platform for that. It's been really interesting the debates that are being had around the food scene within, you know, black Twitter or things like this idea that see, you know, there's there's just lots of humor that's used to poke fun, I guess, at the, the kind of wider media denial of racism as a real problem for our society. Which is why, going back to Fazia's story of the Matatu kitchen, she found it more and more difficult to keep up the project without politicizing the food in the way she wanted to, the way that she was able to on the internet. Interestingly, the Matatu kitchen is sort of ended now because Edwina has left and got a full-time job. So I, I've set up a new website called Aruello Eats. So it's going to be my own platform for really politicizing the supper club. The new project is named for Aruello, a semi-mythical Somali queen told in warning stories to young girls. She was a widow and she was so fed up with what happened to her and other women who were widowed or misfit women who don't conform to the sexism within Somali culture that she set up her own community of women and eventually raided villages, took over and became the queen of Somalia. Aruello Eats is still going to be a cosy supper club that is welcome to all people, a space where the making and serving of food is Fazia's solace and feeling of home. You know, we still have fun. You can still have fun with the supper club. You can still have, you can still enjoy food for what it is, for the comfort, for the joy, for the 
bringing people around the table and all of that. And I think that's really, really important. But that supper club, at least for now, still exists within a landscape that has at times been hostile. A part of me is a bit tired of white people consuming other cultures in this way while the very cultures are being attacked and not necessarily, you know, connecting the two things. They want something new. They haven't had Somali food. They're able to have it in this way. So if I'm going to do that, I'm going to do it on my terms. And so Fazia reaches out to the digital landscape in her website for the project, a place for challenging the easy consumption of foods with troubling histories. And just like the Queen Aruello, who set up her own community of misfit women, Fazia has realized that if the landscape you inhabit doesn't welcome you, you must fight to create a landscape that does. Thanks to Fazia Ismail. You can find her paper from the 2017 symposium on Google eBooks. Links provided on our website, oxfordsymposium.org.uk slash podcast. Oxtails is produced by me, Anna Sigrether, with editorial oversight provided by the brilliant Naomi Duguid and Fiona Sinclair. This show is made possible both by the Friends and the Board of Trustees of the Oxford Symposium on Food and Cookery. With a special thanks to Urs- Ursula... With a special thanks to Ursula Heinzelman and Elizabeth Luard. Our theme music is by Thomas Krauss. Other music in this episode was by Ava Glendinning, Uritur, Ahmed Naji, and Bibi Tanga and the Selenites. For a complete list of sourced audio, please visit our website. And to learn more about the Oxford Symposium, that website again is oxfordsymposium.org.uk. Follow us on Twitter at Oxford Food Simp and Instagram at Ox Food Symposium. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to us and please give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. We are a new show and it really helps. So thanks so much and we will catch you again next week with some more Ox Tales. <laughs> <laughs>